0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Monday, January 6th, 2020. On this day in 1994, Olympic figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was assaulted after a practice session in Detroit, Michigan. The attack knocked her out of the National Figure Skating Championships, clearing the way to the Olympics for her biggest rival. Tanya Harding. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Parcast original. Today we're covering the assault on 24-year-old Nancy Kerrigan at the 1994 National Figure Skating Championships, aka the knee bashing heard round the world. Let's go back to Kobo Arena in Detroit, Michigan, on the afternoon of January 6th. 1994. Nancy was focused as she made her way around the ice rink. She was wearing an all-white lace skating dress, one of her favorites. On her final turn around the ice, she launched into a double axle and landed perfectly on her right leg. It was a beautiful jump. She was ready. She was ready for tomorrow's nationals, and she was ready for the Lillehammer Olympics in February. Nancy coasted to the edge of the ice, where her coach, Evie, stood waiting with a bottle of water and her skate guards. Evie praised her performance. It was worthy of the reigning national champion. She was sure to win the gold again this year. Then, Olympic gold. Nancy smiled and took a pull on the water bottle. She slipped the skate guards on her blades and stepped off of the rink. One step at a time, she told Evie. She headed toward the locker room to get cleaned up. Evie and his wife, Mary, followed. But then Mary ran into someone she knew. When she stopped to talk to her friend, Evie stayed behind with her. Nancy kept going she slipped behind a blue cloth privacy curtain, which blocked the hallway to the dressing room. Suddenly, a tall man in a black leather coat stepped through the curtain behind her. He was huge, six feet tall and at least 200 pounds. He charged at Nancy, whipping out a metal baton. Then he smashed it into Nancy's right leg, just above her kneecap. She screamed and fell to the ground, overcome with pain. She looked up at the strange attacker and cried out, Why me? But he didn't answer. He just ran. Bystanders chased after the attacker, but before they could catch up, he crashed through a plexiglass door to escape. Once outside, he hopped into a waiting getaway car. Then they peeled off. Witnesses couldn't agree on what the attacker looked like. Some insisted he was white, others that he was black. The Detroit police were perplexed, unsure what kind of description to write down. In the hallway, Nancy was left rocking back and forth on the ground, clutching her right leg and crying. Ice rink medics rushed to help. They couldn't understand what had happened, She explained through sobs that someone had hit her knee. Nancy wept and shook in anguish. Eventually, her dad scooped her up off the floor. As he carried her to the medical room, she croaked, It hurts. It hurts so bad. I'm so scared. As the doctors examined Nancy's leg, every wince filled her with more and more rage. Even if it wasn't broken, her knee was ruined, and it was her landing leg. She wouldn't skate in tomorrow's nationals. She might never skate again. Hammer was probably her last chance at the Olympics, at a gold medal, and some crazy man in a leather trench coat had just stolen it from her. It was unfathomable. Nancy wondered, who would do something like this? A crazed fan? Little did she know that before long, authorities would suspect Nancy's biggest rival, Tanya Harding. Coming up, the aftermath of the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. Now back to the story. On January 6, 1994, 24-year-old Nancy Kerrigan was attacked after a practice session at Kobo Arena in Detroit, Michigan. She was there for the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, which would serve as the qualifying event for the Lillehammer Olympics that February in Norway. As New York Times reporter Michael Janofsky wrote in his coverage of the event, besides Kerrigan, the victims were fair play and sportsmanship, as the January 6th attack revealed the dark, desperate motives that sometimes drive people to break rules and laws as a shortcut to fame, or fortune, or both. The attack didn't break any bones, but Nancy's knee was severely bruised. She certainly couldn't compete at nationals, There were those who suspected that her rival, Tanya Harding, was behind the attack. And indeed, with Nancy out of the picture, Tanya won the gold medal at the 1994 National Championships. She had an automatic spot on the Olympic team. Normally, the second spot would go to the silver medalist, 13-year-old Michelle Kwan, But the association decided to take a closer look at the bylaws for Nancy Kerrigan's sake. Michelle was young, she'd surely get another Olympics, but Nancy? This was her last chance, and everyone felt like she'd been robbed of her opportunity. The Lillehammer Games were just weeks away. Nobody could say for certain that Nancy would be in shape in time to compete. But she was resolute. She would be ready. Put her on the team. The committee agreed. The week after the attack, three men were arrested. Sean Eckhart, Derek Smith, and Shane Stant. Stant was the one who actually swung the baton. Eckhart and Smith had helped organize the hit, and they claimed they were hired by Jeff Tanya Harding's ex-husband. According to Eckhart, Smith and Stant, Nancy's attack was a massive conspiracy to make sure Tanya went to the Olympics. At first, Jeff and Tanya denied any and all involvement. But unknown to them, Eckhart had recorded one of his meetings with Jeff discussing the details of the attack. There was no denying that Jeff Galuli was involved. The only question that remained then was whether or not Tanya was involved. She claimed she knew nothing about the attack before it happened, and quickly distanced herself from Jeff, announcing their separation. But the suspicion raged on, fueled by daily headlines about Tanya's alleged involvement. As the FBI worked to determine the truth, the Lillehammer Olympics were fast approaching. The question on everyone's mind was whether or not Tanya would still be allowed to compete. If she'd plotted to attack one of her teammates, could she really skate alongside her? But Tanya didn't care. She hadn't broken any laws and hadn't been convicted of any crime yet which meant that she had every right to skate in the Olympics. She gave a press conference on January 27, 1994, stating, Despite my mistakes and my rough edges, I have done nothing to violate the standards of excellence in sportsmanship that are expected in an Olympic athlete. I have devoted my entire life to one objective, winning an Olympic gold medal for my country, This is my last chance. I ask only for your understanding and the opportunity to represent my country with the best figure skating performance of my life." But it was a wish that wasn't to be. With the constant swarm of press and attention, Tanya spent the month leading up to the Lillehammer Games in a fog of stress and suspicion. Journalists called her house and knocked on her door at all hours of the day. She was barely able to sleep, let alone get her head in the game. Her home rink was in a public mall. Every jump of every practice was accentuated with dozens of camera shutters and flashes. And as soon as she stepped off the plane in Lillehammer, the attention grew tenfold. The world was laser-focused on the ladies' figure skating competition, waiting to see what these two rivals would do on the ice, or perhaps to each other. Figure skater and commentator Brian Boitano said, Let's face it, people will watch Tanya and Nancy to see if they get in a fistfight. It's terrible. In the end, it was anticlimactic. Tanya gave one of the worst performances of her career. She finished in eighth place. Nancy Kerrigan, who'd managed to rehab her leg in time to compete, skated a perfect short program and nearly flawless free skate. Everyone watching expected her Herculean recovery to be rewarded with a gold medal. But 16-year-old Ukrainian skater Oksana Bayul managed to slip ahead. In the final moments of her free skate, Oksana added three extra jumps, giving her the boost she needed to edge out Nancy. She went home with the gold, Nancy with the silver, Tanya with nothing. After the Olympics, Tanya Harding pleaded guilty to conspiring to hinder the prosecution. She admitted she knew as early as January 10th that Jeff Galulli was involved in the attack on Nancy and had failed to report the information to the police, a Class C felony. She was sentenced to three years probation, 500 hours of community service, and fined $160,000. The U.S. Figure Skating Association stripped her of the 1994 National Championship win and revoked her membership in the association. She was barred from skating in any USFSA-sponsored event for life. As Tanya put it, her life was over. She said, truthfully, I don't remember much about anything after the Olympics because I lost everything. That was pretty much the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Ironically, the scandal between Nancy Kerrigan and Tonya Harding renewed interest in the sport of figure skating. The 1994 Lillehammer Olympics were one of the highest-viewed games in history, and 48.5 million viewers tuned in to watch the women's competition a number comparable to Super Bowl ratings. Ticket sales at ice capades and skating competitions shot up. Endorsement deals for figure skaters increased tenfold. It was a massive boon to the sport, and Tanya was on the outside looking in, barred from participating in any of it. To this day, Tanya denies any involvement in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. She says she knew only after the fact. Yet there's still a pervasive public opinion that she was directly involved. Some people even believe that she was the one to commit the knee bashing. Journalist Sarah Marshall addressed this in her article on the attack and aftermath, titled Remote Viewing. She wrote, As for Tanya's claims about her own innocence in the plot itself, Any attempt to dismiss her version out of hand somewhat falls apart once one realizes that the dominant version of the story, the story the press picked up and popularized, and the story that endured largely for that reason, was Jeff's. Tanya's version of events is implausible, only because it contradicts the story we've been familiar with for the last 20 years. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more on Tanya Harding, check out Parcast Original Sports Criminals, which dives deeper into her story. Today in True Crime is a Parcast Original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast Originals Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.